Section six of fourteen months in American Bastilles by Francis Key Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Fort Warren. When we reached Fort Warren late in the afternoon of the thirty first, Colonel Dimmick came on board, as I have stated, and informed us that he had only expected about a hundred political prisoners. He invited several gentlemen to go ashore and see the quarters he had set apart for us. Among these were Commodore Barron, Mayor Brown, and Messrs. Faulkner, Charles Howard, and Kane. They hurriedly inspected the various rooms by candlelight, and after about an hour's absence they returned. That night they selected their quarters and their roommates, as Colonel Demick had requested them to do. About ten o'clock the following morning, we landed and were marched into the fort, where the roll was called, and we were shown to our respective quarters. The fort is situated on an island containing forty-three acres, nearly the whole of which is covered by the fortifications. The interior work is built in the most substantial manner, of granite, and encloses a space of some five or six acres. It is an irregular structure, which it is impossible for me to describe accurately. The five principal sides are each about three hundred feet long. Two of these sides are divided into deep casements, on a level with, and opening on, the parade ground. One other side contains rooms intended for officers' quarters. There were ten of these rooms, on a level with, and looking out, on the parade ground, and immediately in the rear of these were ten more fronting on the space between the curtain and an exterior work. Beneath these twenty rooms, both in front and rear, there were twenty more of the same size as those above, the inner or front ones being, of course, basement rooms, and opening upon an area about seven feet wide and ten or twelve deep, and those in the rear looking out on the space between the interior and exterior works above mentioned, which was below the level of the inside enclosure. Between the front and rear rooms, above and below, there were also two very small dark rooms, intended, I presume, for storerooms. All the interior, or front rooms, were lighted by large windows, and those in the rear, by narrow loopholes, about six inches wide, at the outer edge and four or five feet high. The upper rooms were all neatly furnished, and those in front were very light and airy. The lower rooms had cement floors, and were much less desirable. Sixteen of the rooms I have attempted to describe were assigned to the political prisoners, and the officers who were prisoners of war, viz. four front rooms opening on the parade ground, and four immediately beneath them, and eight just in the rear of these, together with the smaller rooms, or closets, which separated the front and rear rooms. One large, long casement in another side of the fort was devoted to the same purpose. Commodore Barron, and several of the army officers with him, and Marshal Kane, selected one of the four upper front rooms, the North Carolina officers of the highest rank another, the Baltimore police commissioners another, and the mayor of Baltimore and Messrs. Moorhead and Faulkner the fourth. These several parties, having, in accordance with Colonel Dimmick's request, made choice of their rooms, also selected as their companions in their new quarters, those who had been their roommates at Fort Columbus and Fort Lafayette. I thus found myself again among my old roommates. The other prisoners, generally choosing their own roommates, 
were quartered in the other rooms, and in the casement before mentioned. The crowded condition of the room I occupied will illustrate the situation of our fellow prisoners. This room was nineteen and a half by fifteen feet, and one of the little closets of which we had the use was ten by ten and a half feet. Into this room and closet nine of us were crowded. So close together were our beds that it would have been impossible to have put another one in the room without blocking up the doors. There was scarcely space enough for another, even in the middle of the floor. Those who got into the long casement were far worse off than their other fellow prisoners. This casement was, I should suppose, less than fifty feet long and less than twenty wide, and so crowded was it that the inmates were compelled to sleep in bunks, which were arranged one above the other in three tiers. They had also to cook their meals in the same room. When we were installed in our quarters, we began to look around to see what sort of provision had been made for us. As we had been told that at least a hundred of us had been expected, we naturally took it for granted that something had been done to make us tolerably comfortable. Our former experience ought to have prevented us from entertaining any such hopes, but we were not long under any delusion. No preparation had apparently been made for one single prisoner, except that fires were kindled in the various rooms. Colonel Demick, whose demeanor towards us was on all occasions that of a gentleman, seemed to be annoyed at the position in which he found himself. He informed us of his inability to provide for us decently, and expressed his regret at the fact. But his good feeling could not much alleviate our situation. Not a bedstead, bed, blanket, or chair was then furnished any of us. Those of us who had carried on the bedding we had purchased at Fort Lafayette were able to lend a few articles to our friends, but the great majority of the prisoners were forced to sleep upon the floor, upon their greatcoats, and the few cloaks and shawls they happened to have or could borrow. This state of things continued two or three weeks, at the end of which time Colonel Dimmick managed to have the furniture, which had been so tardily provided for us at Fort Lafayette, sent on to Fort Warren. In the meantime, many had, at their own expense, supplied themselves from Boston with necessary articles. But the others had to shift for themselves as best they could, until the arrival of the furniture from our former prison. The day we landed, the only dinner provided for us consisted of a barrel of crackers and a couple of raw hams, which were placed on the head of a flour barrel in front of our quarters. We were informed that the government would allow us the ordinary soldiers' rations, but that we would have to cook them ourselves, and a place would be given us for the purpose. Mr. Hall, the purveyor for the laborers and officers at the post, agreed to furnish us that evening with supper. It consisted of cold boiled salt beef, bread and bad coffee, which, however, we were hungry enough to eat with considerable relish. This was the only meal we had that day, or until noon the day following. Not knowing exactly how we could manage our rations after they should be distributed to us, a number of us, by Colonel Dimmick's permission, requested Mr. Hall to furnish us two meals a day, at least until we could make some other arrangement. This he agreed to do at the rate of one dollar a day each, and a good business he must have made of it, for scantier and worse entertainment we had never seen, provided at anything like half the price. 
We were forced, however, to continue this arrangement for a week, at the end of which time we took matters into our own hands. We obtained the use of the two casements and cooking stoves, and established two clubs or messes, and engaged some of the North Carolina prisoners to cook and wait in the mess room, and also to attend to our quarters. As there was a government boat running regularly between the fort and Boston, we ordered daily supplies of meats, milk, and vegetables, and with the addition of our rations, we were enabled to live with reasonable comfort. After the North Carolina prisoners were exchanged, we from time to time got servants from Boston, almost invariably foreigners, and continued, though at an increased expense, to live as we had previously done. In speaking of our treatment, I speak solely of the political or state prisoners, as I know nothing of the way in which prisoners of war are entitled to be, or usually are, dealt with, I have nothing to say upon that point. I will merely state that the North Carolina prisoners, numbering about six hundred, exclusive of their commissioned officers, were confined in eight casements. They were thus terribly crowded. During the first two or three days, they had scarcely anything to eat. I do not know the cause of this, but the fact is that they absolutely suffered from hunger. Afterwards they received their rations regularly, and large boilers were placed in front of their quarters for them to cook in. These were in the open air, and not in any way sheltered, and the men had to cook there in all kinds of weather, during the time they remained, which was until they were exchanged, in February, 1862. In front of the range of rooms occupied by the political prisoners, and about ten yards off, sentinels were placed, and beyond them we were not allowed to go. The officers, who were prisoners of war, were permitted to walk about the whole island, both within and without the fort, on their parole. But we were confined to the space some hundred yards long, by ten wide, between our quarters and the line of sentinels just mentioned. This regulation was enforced for nearly six months, and as we understood at the time, was specifically directed by the government. During that time we were kept strictly within these narrow bounds. Why men who were taken with arms in their hands were less rigorously treated than we was obvious. The Confederate government could exact certain rights for them, but there was no power or law in this part of the country to protect us. The day after our arrival, I wrote to my wife this hurried account of our journey from Fort Lafayette. Fort Warren, Boston Harbor, Saturday, November 2nd. We have arrived here safely, and a more uncomfortable set of human beings have never, I trust, been collected before in these quarters. We left Fort Lafayette on Wednesday morning, and together with the prisoners from Fort Columbus, came here on one of the sound steamers. There were about four times as many on board as the vessel could accommodate, and the only food which the government provided was bread and fat pork and a liquid called coffee. I saw the most prominent gentlemen of Maryland, Kentucky, and Virginia drinking what purported to be coffee out of a dirty horse bucket, while water was served out to them from a large tin, such as is used to hold the greasy plates after dinner. Pieces of fat about two inches square were handed round to those who could swallow them, and a man's fingers constituted the table furniture. A number of elderly gentlemen could not at night find a place to sit, and scores of my friends 
slept for two nights upon the floors, which were the filthiest that you are ever likely to see. At this place no provision whatever had been made for us. Many of the rooms are not fit for the accommodation of human beings in the winter months in this climate. No beds have been furnished, and none are to be, a sack of straw being the only thing which the government will supply. Even such bedding as this has not arrived. We have been here twenty-four hours, and most of the party have lived on a little raw ham and bread, and have slept on the floor. Not even a blanket has been given us. I have managed to get along better than most of my fellow prisoners, for I brought my mattress and a basket of provisions. I also was lucky enough to secure a stateroom. The privations I have suffered, serious as they were, have been light compared to those which numbers of my companions have endured. It is now ten o'clock, and we are, as yet, vainly trying to get some breakfast, which a caterer from Boston has agreed to furnish. I thus give you the brief outlines of this phase of our story. It is not necessary that I should supply the comments. I will write again when I have had a little time to look about me. The officers, as far as I can judge, are polite and kind, which in my late experiences is a novelty. It has been our misfortune to meet but few, if any, gentlemen, thus far, and a change in that particular will be grateful. I give this letter at length, because it was returned to me by order of Colonel Demick, who sent me word that his instructions prohibited the transmission of any such intelligence as I had attempted to send my family. It is evident from the suppression of so simple a statement of facts that the government had determined to resort to all the means in its power to prevent the victims of its tyranny from making their situation known to the public. We were specifically ordered not to discuss public affairs in our letters, it is needless to recapitulate all the admonitions we received upon this point. The following examples will suffice. On the 8th of April, 1862, a letter was returned to a political prisoner with this note in Colonel Dimmick's handwriting. The government requires the gentlemen at Fort Warren to avoid, in their correspondence, discussing the differences between the North and South, or giving any account of the battles between the contending forces. This letter is, therefore, respectfully returned. An order relating to the letters of prisoners was posted in our quarters on the 10th of April, which concluded thus. Military and political subjects must be avoided in all correspondence. Lieutenant James S. Casey, USA. Officer in charge. Notwithstanding these regulations, we continued to discuss from time to time the forbidden subjects and as a large number of letters were to be inspected every day, many, which were in violation of the above orders, found their way to our friends. But this happened, I suppose, because the examining officer had not time to read the letters very carefully, for the rules were never directly relaxed or modified. After we had been a few weeks in Fort Warren, an order touching the employment of counsel by prisoners, and signed by Mr. William H. Seward, the Secretary of State, was read to us by the United States Marshal for the district. We were unable to procure an exact copy of that order, but we afterwards obtained a copy of a similar one, which was read, somewhere about the same time, to the prisoners then in Fort Lafayette. This latter order was signed by a Mr. Seth C. Howley, Chief Clerk of the Metropolitan Police Commissioners of New York, 
who subsequently visited us also. He was acting, as he stated, under Mr. Seward's directions. The order ran as follows, and was read at Fort Lafayette on 3rd December, 1861. I am instructed by the Secretary of State to inform you that the Department of State of the United States will not recognize any one as an attorney for political prisoners, and will look with distrust upon all applications for release through such channels, and that such applications will be regarded as additional reasons for declining to release the prisoners. And further, that if such prisoners wish to make any communication to the government, they are at liberty, and are requested to make it directly to the State Department. Seth C. Howley the purport and phraseology of the order read to us in Fort Warren on the 28th of November, and of the above, were identical, except that stronger language was used in the former. Instead of being told that the employment of counsel on our behalf would be regarded as an additional reason for declining to release us, we were distinctly notified that any attempt to communicate with the government through such channels would be considered a sufficient reason for prolonging our confinement. We were thus precluded from endeavoring to set our respective cases in their proper light before the State Departments, even if we had desired, as some of the prisoners did, to pursue that course. We could look for no relief except such as should be voluntarily vouchsafed to us, by what our oppressors were wont to call the freest and most beneficent government on earth. The privilege of sending our communications directly to the State Departments was one to which our past experiences forbade us to attach much importance. The fate of the communications we had already addressed to the various government officers gave us little encouragement to seek redress in that way, and the sequel will show that our view of the matter was correct. The day after the foregoing order had been promulgated, Colonel Dimmick caused this further order to be read to us. Department of State, Washington, November 27th, 1861 Colonel, the Secretary of State has been informed that Mr. William H. Ludlow has represented to some of the prisoners confined in Fort Lafayette that he possesses or can use some influence in their behalf, and has made it a ground for obtaining from them money in hand, or engagements for money, or other valuable consideration. Discountenancing and repudiating all such practices, the Secretary of State desires that all state prisoners may understand that they are expected to revoke all such engagements now existing, and avoid any hereafter, as they can only lend new complications and embarrassments to the cases of prisoners on whose behalf the government might be disposed to act with liberality. All persons can communicate directly by letter with the Secretary of State through Colonel Dimmick himself or any unpaid and disinterested agent whom they may find for that purpose. Signed, William H. Seward. What the cause or precise object of this order was, it was difficult to comprehend. Mr. Ludlow had had the freest access to the prisoners in Fort Lafayette, and he could only have obtained that privilege from Mr. Seward himself, whose department then had us in charge. Why, then, was he so suddenly and publicly denounced? This question we could not and did not much care to solve, but a fact that transpired immediately afterwards satisfied us that the apparent quarrel between the two was not irreconcilable. At all events, Mr. Seward's hostility did not much damage Mr. Ludlow, 
for but a week or two had passed when it was announced that the latter gentleman, whose proceedings had been discountenanced and repudiated, had received a commission in the army. He was made a major, and appointed a member of General Dix's staff at Baltimore, where he remained until General Dix was assigned another post. That Mr. Seward was animated by a desire to protect us against imposition, or by any other creditable motive, none of us for an instant believed. But whatever may have been his object in excluding Mr. Ludlow from what might have been supposed to be a profitable field of professional labor, he certainly did not prevent other lawyers from acting on behalf of the prisoners. How many of these employed counsel, or declined to revoke pre-existing engagements, I cannot say. But in two cases, at least, the paid counsel of political prisoners in Fort Warren were in communication with Mr. Seward, about and subsequent to the date of these orders. Mr. Reverdy Johnson was acting for at least two gentlemen in Fort Warren, whose release he afterward obtained, and Mr. Everts, of New York, was acting, and continued long after to act, as counsel for another, and was, as such, in communication with the government. From time to time offers were made to different prisoners to discharge them conditionally. Sometimes an oath of allegiance, which bound the party taking it to support the United States government, notwithstanding any action which his state might take, was proposed as the price of his release. This was almost uniformly declined. Then various forms of parole were proposed, which bound the respective parties, either not to go into the seceded states, or not to go into the border states, or not to correspond with any one in any of those states, or not to take up arms against the government. The simplest parole, in form, merely imposed an obligation not to give aid and comfort to the enemies in hostility against the United States, but, as any discussion of the corruption or imbecility of the administration was regarded by it as treasonable, this form of parole was probably for its purposes the most comprehensive. Many of the prisoners accepted some or other of the terms proposed, and were released. Others declined to make any concessions whatever, insisting that, as they had been arbitrarily imprisoned, they would not recognize the right, which Mr. Lincoln claimed, to impose upon them any conditions. It is to those who took and maintained this ground that the ensuing portion of this narrative mainly refers. One fact, however, concerning the Negro servants of the prisoners of war may be worthy of mention. There were, with the officers who were taken at Fort Hatteras, three Negroes, two of whom were slaves. At Fort Columbus, the government had offered them their discharge on taking the oath of allegiance, which they had declined. At Fort Warren, the oath was again tendered to them, and again refused. Finally, they were offered their liberty, on giving their simple parole, not to do anything hostile to the government. They inquired whether, if they went out on such conditions, they would be furnished with passes to go south. They were told that these could not be granted, and they then refused to accept the terms offered them. They were bent on returning to their old homes in North Carolina, and one of them took very high ground in the matter, saying in reply to an inquiry about his refusal to give his parole that he wanted to go out honorable. They subsequently went back to North Carolina with the Fort Hatteras prisoners, when the latter were exchanged. On the 14th of November, a notice was posted in the doorway of our quarters, signed by Mr. Seth C. Howley, 
apprising us of his intention to visit Fort Warren for the purpose of inquiring what prisoners would take the oath, as a preliminary to the investigation of their several cases. On the following day Mr. Howley appeared, and in pursuance of his purpose, called on the prisoners in their quarters. Almost every one rejected his proposition, mainly taking occasion to couple with their very unequivocal refusal expressions of contempt for Mr. Hawley and those who sent him. Several of the members of the legislature, desiring to put in writing the reasons for their refusal to submit to the conditions which Mr. Hawley came to propose, signed and handed to him a paper which Mr. S. T. Wallace had drawn up as his own answer to the inquiry. Fort Warren, November 15th, 1861 Mr. Seth C. Hawley, Sir, a notice signed by you appeared this afternoon upon the walls of the quarters in which we are confined. We quote in full, as follows, viz. The undersigned appointed by the Secretary of State, U.S., to examine into the cases of political prisoners at Fort Warren, desires those prisoners to be prepared to-morrow to answer the question whether they would severally be willing to take the oath of allegiance to the Constitution and government of the United States, if they should be set at liberty. Further inquiry into each case to depend upon the answer. To-morrow there will be an opportunity to answer the question. Signed, Seth C. Howley. Fort Warren, November 14th, 1861. We presume we are among those whom you designate as political prisoners, and supposing that you may call upon us to-morrow to answer the inquiry which you have indicated, we desire to furnish our reply in our own language, in order that we may not be misunderstood or misrepresented. As we understand your notice, further inquiry into each case is to depend upon the willingness of the individuals to take the oath which you propose. That is to say, that no man's case will be inquired into unless he first signify his willingness to swear as required. We have now been in confinement for more than two months. We were arrested, without process or form of law, upon the alleged authority of the Secretary of State of the United States, who clearly has no lawful authority, whatever, in the premises. We have been dragged from one fortress of the government to another, by military force, and have been dealt with in a manner which would have been indecent if we had been convicted felons, instead of free men, accused of no offense against the laws of our country. We have been separated from our homes and families, and exposed to constant suffering and privation, to the injury of health, the prejudice of our interests and good name, and in flagrant violation of every right which we have inherited as American citizens. More than this, as members of the legislature of Maryland, we have been unlawfully withdrawn from the performance of our official duties, in derogation of the constitutional rights of our state and her people. To tell us, after all this, that our case has not even been inquired into, thus far, and that it will not even now be made the subject of inquiry, by the government at whose hands we have suffered so much wrong, unless we will first submit to conditions as unlawful and arbitrary as our arrest and imprisonment, is to offer to each of us an insult, which we should forfeit our self-respect if we did not repel. If we are accused of having committed any offense known to the law, we are entitled to be lawfully and publicly charged therewith, and to be tried, not by you, 
nor by the Secretary of State, but by the constituted tribunals of the district, from which we have been violently and illegally removed. If we have been guilty of no crime against the law, we are entitled to be discharged, without any terms or conditions, and the Secretary of State, if you really represent him, is only visiting us with an additional outrage, by attempting to impose such upon us. We are your obedient servants, E. G. Kilburn, William G. Harrison, S. Teagle Wallace, Henry M. Warfields, T. Parkin Scott, J. Hanson Thomas. The reasons which influenced the parties to the foregoing documents were the same that operated upon all those who declined to make any compromise with the administration. We still felt, in addition to our own sense of personal wrong, that the cause of constitutional liberty in our state was at stake, and that, as far as our efforts would avail, we were bound to defend it. A refusal to acquiesce in the proceedings by which the government had outraged the people of Maryland was the only mode of resisting arbitrary power that was left to us, and we had no hesitation in adhering to our course. But while we, in Fort Warren, were thus endeavoring to discharge what we felt to be our duty in such an exigency, we were hopefully looking to those who were differently situated to support us. Armed resistance on the part of the people of our state would, we well knew, have been utterly vain. But we hoped there would at least be a continual and vigorous assertion of the rights from all whose position gave them any influence, or an opportunity of making themselves heard. We thought it possible that when Congress met, it might manifest a disposition to compel Mr. Lincoln to surrender the power he had usurped, and conform thenceforth to the plain dictates of the Constitution and the laws. In this we were disappointed. Some few brave and honest men manfully denounced the course of the administration, but an overwhelming majority of both houses, while uttering unmeaning platitudes about our free government, our indestructible constitution, and our inalienable rights, subserviently supported every despotic and infamous act of Mr. Lincoln and his advisers. Others held their peace. About this time, being struck by some paragraphs in a speech delivered in the Senate by Mr. Trumbull, of Illinois, early in December 1861, I addressed him the subjoined note. Fort Warren, December 8, 1861 Honorable Lyman Trumbull, United States Senate Sir, In the speech delivered by you in the Senate on the fifth instant, I find the following language. The power of Congress to pass a bill of this kind is, to my mind, unquestionable, but I do not place it upon the same ground which has been advanced in some quarters, that in times of war or rebellion the military is superior to the civil power, or that in such times what persons may choose to call necessity is higher than and above the Constitution. Necessity is the plea of tyrants, and if our Constitution ceases to operate the moment a person charged with its observance thinks there is a necessity to violate it, it is of little value. As unpopular as the avowal may be for the moment among the thoughtless, I here declare that I am for suppressing this monstrous rebellion according to law, and in no other way. We are fighting to maintain the Constitution, and it especially becomes us, in appealing to the people to come to its rescue, not to violate it ourselves. How are we better than the rebels, 
if both alike set at naught the Constitution. I take leave to recommend these emphatic words to your reperusal and reconsideration in connection with the following facts. I am a citizen of the State of Maryland, and, of course, of the United States. On the 12th of September last, I was carried from my house at midnight by armed men, who professed to be acting under the orders of the Secretary of State, but who refused to produce any warrant whatever in justification of their proceedings. I was carried to Fort McHenry and have been transferred successively to Fortress Monroe, Fort Lafayette, and Fort Warren, and am now confined in the latter. Nearly three months have elapsed since I have been imprisoned, and no charge has been or can be preferred against me, for I have violated no law, state or federal. My offense is that I have denied the justice and policy of the present war, and that I have insisted on the right of Maryland to ally herself with either section in the event of the dissolution of the Union, the final destruction of the political system which she aided to establish. I have expressed political opinions in opposition to those entertained at Washington, and for this I am now in prison. Now I presume that you have some regard for the rights of each and every one of your fellow citizens, and for your own reputation likewise, and that after the language I have quoted, and the facts I have referred to, you cannot refuse to call public attention to my case, and to denounce, from your place in the Senate, the wrongs that have been done me and scores of my fellow prisoners. If you expect a future generation to vindicate your reputation for integrity, it is absolutely necessary that you should intervene publicly in behalf of men who have been made the victims of just such arbitrary and unconstitutional measures as you have protested against. I trust it is not too much for me to anticipate that your action in this matter will be such as your avowed opinions have led me to look for. I am very respectfully, F. K. Howard. Mr. Trumbull did not call public attention to my case, but a few days afterwards he did introduce into the Senate a resolution calling on the Secretary of State for information as to whether he had caused the arrest of any individuals in the various states, and if so, for what cause. This resolution was advocated by Mr. Trumbull and one or two others with vigor and ability, but was referred to one of the standing committees, and never heard of more. Mr. Trumbull apparently soon ceased to trouble himself about the matter. End of section 6 Recording by Katie Riley September 2010